When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. My regular co-host Robert Lamb is out on vacation the day I'm recording this, but he will be back again soon. Today, we've got an interview for you. Uh, This is a chat that I had with planetary scientist Dr. Sabine Stanley about her 2023 book called What's Hidden Inside Planets. This is a wonderfully interesting book about the science of planet formation and about what we know about the insides of planets near and far. A quick bit of author bio before we get started here. Dr. Sabine Stanley is a distinguished planetary scientist and a key contributor to NASA's Mars InSight mission. Holding a Ph.D. in Earth and Planetary Sciences from Harvard University, she focuses on the complexities of planetary interiors. Currently a faculty member at a top research university, she leads innovative studies in her specialized field. Beyond academia, Dr. Stanley is a regular speaker at international scientific conferences and serves as a consultant for various space missions. Her research has been published in leading scientific journals, earning her multiple awards for her contributions to planetary science. With a career that blends rigorous research and public engagement, Dr. Stanley remains a pivotal voice in the scientific community, committed to enhancing our cosmic understanding. So I guess now let's uh, jump right into our conversation. Dr. Sabine Stanley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So... I wanted to start off with the idea, uh, something you bring up in the preface of your book, uh, which is that when non-scientists look out at space and find things to get excited about, one of the things I think that that really gets people stirring is the idea of an exoplanet with liquid water at the surface or a planet with breathable atmosphere, breathable to us. 
And yet you say in your preface that, quote, arguably a planet's interior is more important than the surface in determining a world's fitness for life or ability to withstand the pressures put on it by its home star. I think this might be really surprising to people. Could you explain this? Sure. There are actually two parts to this, I would say. The first is uh, deep inside our planet in the iron core, we actually generate the Earth's magnetic field. And magnetic fields, when they are generated in the core, they, they come all the way out to the surface of the planet and they basically surround the planet. And our magnetic field acts as this amazing shield stopping these high-energy solar wind particles from hitting us. Now, when you have these high-energy particles coming from the sun, uh, if they actually blasted into the planet without the magnetic field there, they would work to strip off our atmosphere um, they would bring high radiation levels to the surface. Um, it would essentially not be a really great place to live um, if we didn't have our magnetic field. So one really important thing when thinking about, hmm, is that planet going to be really good for, say, life to form, is does it have a magnetic field? And that's really created in, in deep inside the planet. The other aspect of this is that most of the reasons that we think the surface of Earth is so nice and habitable, right, the liquid water, the breathable air, all of that is related to a kind of recycling process that happens inside Earth. Earth's water, a lot of it came from outgassing a volcano. So there's water deep inside the Earth. Uh, when you have volcanic um, flows bringing up magma to the surface, there's lots of gas particles and water in that. That eventually makes it out into the atmosphere. It, it Carbon dioxide is recycled this way. Water is recycled this way. So you can't really just focus on the surface. You have to ask, how does that surface interact with what's going on deep inside the planet. So when people imagine what's going on deep inside the planet and the way it affects the surface, probably what first comes to uh, the average non-scientist's mind would be like earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. But actually, it's much more entangled than that. Yeah, absolutely. But those are also great examples of ways that the interior of our planet is really connected to how we experience the surface of a planet. Earthquakes, that's because the plates on the surface of the Earth are moving around and they descend back into the Earth at subduction zones and create these, these, these um, frictional spots between plates that create these earthquakes, right? Another great example. There's a false fact that I once knew that uh, your book corrected me on. If you had asked me what was the source of Earth's magnetic field that you were just talking about, I would have said that it was generated by the spinning of the molten liquid core around the Earth's solid iron core because of the image of spinning. And I guess there's general knowledge that there's a sort of dynamo effect. But in the book, you explained that that isn't exactly correct. That's not exactly what's going on. So what does generate the Earth's magnetic field? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a common misunderstanding out there. Even some scientists have it. Uh, so it turns out in order to generate magnetic fields, you do need to have a good electrical conductor, and so having a metal like iron in the center of the Earth, that helps. You do need to have it be um, liquid or fluid, ability to move around. But the key thing is the motions that can create magnetic fields through like this dynamo action that you talked about. Those motions have to be much more complex than just spinning around. So it's not just that the Earth is spinning and that's causing it. It's actually these like helical type flows that occur because of the fact that the Earth is trying to cool down. So space is cold, the inside of Earth is hot, and so just like if you put a pot of, uh, a pot of soup on the stove, the bottom of the pot is hot, the top of the pot is cold, you get that boiling action, that rolling around motions. Same thing in the core of the Earth. You get these churning motions as the hot material at the center of the Earth tries to make it up and out 
to cool down the core and then the planet. So it's convection, that's what we call it, it's convection that's the motion that's actually creating the magnetic field that Earth has. So it's this this uh, magnetic dynamo that creates the field that can in some ways permit and sustain life on Earth. To what extent is Earth unique in this regard? What do we know about the uh, the presence of a possible dynamo in other planets or objects in our solar system? Yeah, great question. So lots of the other planets actually do have magnetic fields. So all the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, they all have these global magnetic fields generated by a dynamo deep inside, just like Earth. Um, the smallest of the planets, Mercury, also has a dynamo. And this was actually quite a surprise when it was discovered. Uh, now, for Mars, it doesn't have a dynamo today, so it doesn't have this global magnetic field, but it did have one in the past. So about four billion years ago, uh, the rocks on the surface of Mars were magnetized uh, from a dynamo that was active at that time. And then there's Venus. For Venus, we have no way to tell if it ever had a dynamo in the past. It does not have one today. Uh, you bring up Venus, and there's a funny thing you mentioned toward the end of the book, which is uh, the frustrations that Venus presents to planetary scientists, especially the ones who want to study the uh, the interior of the planet. Why is Venus so frustrating? Why is it so hard to study? Yeah, Venus is the worst planet in the solar system. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Um, here's the issue, right? It's really hard to study the insides of planets. You don't have access to it. You can't drill down and study the core of a planet that way. So you have to develop all these really clever methods to try and figure out what's going on deep inside the Earth. A lot of methods that are kind of like what doctors use to figure out what's going on inside the human body, right? We do scans of things. We use gravity. We use magnetic fields. We use seismology. So then you try and use any of these techniques on Venus, and they don't work for a variety of different reasons. So first of all, let's say uh, we wanted to use uh, uh, seismology, right? So the waves that pass through a planet, when you have an earthquake, for example, on Earth, the speed of those waves is completely determined by the material properties that are passing through. So we actually learn a lot about what the materials are inside the Earth by looking at how fast these seismic waves travel through it. You wanna do this on Venus? Sorry, the surface is a horrible temperature and the atmosphere is made of sulfuric acid and the pressure is 92 uh, atmospheric pressures. So it's just, your material's just gonna melt and dissolve, basically. So no chance to do that. Then you try and use a magnetic field, right? Having a magnetic field is a great way to learn about the interior of a planet. As soon as you know a planet has a global magnetic field, you know it's got a liquid, molten, electrical conductor in its interior and it's got those churning motions. Well, Venus doesn't have that, so we can't use that. Then you try and say, okay, well, why don't we just observe the surface and look at the rotation of the surface, for example? Well, Venus has this horribly opaque atmosphere that you can't actually look through and, and try to do that. And then uh, th one of my favorite things about Venus is that when you look at all the planets, all the planets, you know, we talk about planets being spheres. They're not spheres. They're actually kind of bulgy, oblate spheroids, we call them. So they're fatter across the equator than they are at the poles. And that bulging of the equator is because of the fact that the planets spin. Now, we can use that information, how bulgy a planet is, to actually tell what material is inside it, how dense it is inside it. Um, and you go and try and do this at Venus, and Venus is rotating so slowly that it basically has no bulge, so we can't use that either. So basically, Venus is just very frustrating, doesn't want us to know anything about its interior. <laughs> um, so there's a great section in the chapter Gazing Outward, where uh, in this chapter you're talking about the formation of our, of our solar system uh, from the ori original molecular cloud uh, that came together to make the sun and the planets, the protoplanetary disk. And you 
you talk about uh, how the, the interesting ways, the connections between the features of that initial cloud and features of the current solar system and even everyday life on Earth. So, for example, the elemental composition of that vast cloud determines the elements that make our solar system. But also more interesting and subtle things like how the slight initial rotation of that cloud governs so much about our world. Could you talk about some of these connections between the properties of the cloud and the way the solar system is now? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember once sitting there and just thinking, you know, okay, yeah, we know that the planets orbit around the sun. Uh, we know that the planets are spinning. Why is everything spinning, right? Why, why don't, doesn't anything just stay still? And the answer has to do with this great concept in physics called angular momentum conservation. So basically, you can't just change the spin of something without putting a lot of torque on it, like forcing it, right? And so then you put something out in the middle of nowhere, a molecular cloud, right? And, and you don't have anything really torquing it or anything. And you ask, well, how much spin is it going to have? And it's going to have some random amount, right? Like nothing's perfectly isolated and still. So you take all those particles in the molecular cloud and you add up all their spins. And a lot of them will cancel out. Some will be spinning in one direction. Other particles will be spinning in the other direction. And you, you add it all up and it almost all cancels out except for a little bit. And that little bit in a molecular cloud, here's the amazing thing. Um, once gravity gets hold of that molecular cloud and it starts um, gravitationally collapsing to eventually form our solar system, that amount of spinning just increases and increases and increases as the cloud gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you have a total understanding, people have a total understanding of this effect if you've ever watched, for example, figure skaters uh, who are about to do a jump with a spinet and they pull their arms in. As soon as you make something more compact, it spins faster, even though you don't do anything to it. And the same thing happened to the molecular cloud. As it became smaller and smaller and smaller, it spun faster and faster and faster. And that's what led to all the spinning we have in the solar system now. And this is true not just of our solar system. We can look out and see other solar systems forming. We can see other planets around other stars. They're all spinning too. It's all the kind of, we share that among all the planets. We call the roughly spherical objects uh, that orbit stars planets, and we call the objects that orbit planets moons. But are there any other material differences between a planet and a moon? Are there even any trends? Yeah, it's a great question. So moons, moons can be complicated. So in reality, if you're someone like me who's interested in the interior of planets, you're just as happy to consider moons planets, right? Moons, for their, they're made of similar stuff, they have the same laws of physics that govern their interior. Uh, we have moons that have magnetic fields. Ganymede, which is a moon of Jupiter, actually has a magnetic field generated in its core. So we study the same processes on these bodies. Um, where moons can be a little bit different than planets is there's a lot bigger um, possibility of where they came from compared to where they ended up. So, for example, the rocky planets in the inner solar system, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, they all pretty much formed close to where they are now. Some moons actually come from very far away and then get trapped in the gravitational field of a planet and then become a moon there. And that happens a lot, for example, in the outer solar system. So if you look at Jupiter or Neptune or any of these planets, some of their moons are on these really weird orbits. They're like orbiting in the opposite direction as the planet is spinning. They're not around the equator at all. And those moons, we think, are actually captured, basically comets. They're ca captured comets or asteroids that were doing their own thing, got gravitationally kicked into the solar system a little bit closer in, 
and then got trapped around a planet. So you can actually find some bodies orbiting these planets that were probably formed much further away. And so in that sense, that's a little bit different than what you see with planets. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. One uh, of the most shocking facts that you discuss in the book concerns the formation of the Earth's moon. Uh, now, I know the the leading theory on the formation of the Earth's moon is the, is the giant impact uh, idea. But um, specifically, the thing that you introduced to me was how rapidly the Earth's moon was probably formed according to the leading theory of its origin. Could you explain this? Yeah, this blows my mind, by the way. So uh, we're somewhat, I think people have heard of this theory that something about the size of Mars, um, usually called Theia, uh, crashed into Earth, had this kind of glancing impact into proto-Earth. Earth very, this was like 4.5 billion years ago. Um, and that crash caused some of that body and some of the Earth to get kind of uh, blasted off the surface of the planet. 
uh, and small chunks were put into orbit. And then you ask the question, okay, so now you have this disk of material surrounding the Earth. How long did it take for that disk of material to become the moon, a single object? Now, that disk of material followed the same laws of physics as the planets forming out of the disk initially on. Gravity caused collisions. Some of those collisions caused things to clump together. Eventually, the moon grew and grew and grew. And estimates suggest it took 40 years for this to happen. Now, when you're talking about things in astronomy and, and in Earth science, you're working on millions of years, billions of years. Those are the types of lengths of time we're used to. So talking about a process that takes 40 years is just shocking. And so, I, you know, I always have this image in my head, and this is obviously impossible because it was 4.5 billion years ago, but I have this image in my head of like um, some parents sitting down with their kids and, and the parents going, you know, when I was your age, there was no moon in the sky kind of thing, right? Like it's, that, it's on a human uh, generational timescale that this changed. That, that's truly unbelievable. And you actually mentioned several other things about the moon that uh, I didn't quite know about and were so interesting. One is that uh, its apparent magnitude from the Earth was larger initially, I guess because it was closer. But you also mentioned something called a fossil bulge in the moon. Could, could you explain these? So when the moon formed, it was much closer to the Earth. And since then, it's been slowly receding away from the Earth. And we can even measure this uh, change in distance of the moon to the Earth. And that's happening because of really interesting gravitational interaction between the moon and the Earth. And it's the same reason, for example, that the moon only shows us one face. So tidal interactions, the fact that, you know, the Earth's not a perfect sphere, the moon's not a perfect sphere, and they tug on each other when they're not kind of facing the right way, um, that has caused the moon to to start moving further away. It's also caused the Earth to start slowing down its rotation a little bit. And so over time, the moon's moving further away and it's going to make it smaller and smaller and smaller. And one reason we know all of this um, is that the moon, if you look at how bulgy it is, like I talked about how spinning objects have this, this bulge on them, the moon is too bulgy for how fast it's spinning right now. And the only way to explain that is it must have been spinning faster in the past and the only way for it to have been spinning faster in the past is if it was much closer to the Earth because it, we know it's locked. Its day is locked to the Earth's, uh, you know, it's always facing the Earth the same side. So it had to be, have a much um, faster spin in order to get that bulge that it had. With exoplanets, um, we often hear about the habitable zone of a star, the area of a, uh, the distance out from a star that we believe there could be the conditions possible for, for life to arise. Uh, but an interesting fact you mention is that if, if a far away exoplanet astronomer were looking at our solar system, they would see not one but three planets within our habitable zone, Earth, Venus, and Mars. But uh, neither of the other two planets, Mars or Venus, are especially hospitable now, and Venus is really inhospitable. So uh, what does that tell us about looking for exoplanets that could sustain life uh, elsewhere? I think it tells us that we have to be um, a little more subtle in how we figure out whether a planet is a good candidate for something that might have life or not, right? Uh, totally get why, the, why we are using these criteria right now, right? The, what's the distance from a planet star at which the temperatures are just right so that water could be liquid on the surface if there was water there? That's kind of the condition we're using now. Um, but as mentioned, planets are complicated, and you could have a planet that completely changes its surface temperature through a greenhouse, a runaway greenhouse effect. That's what happened on Venus, right? Venus is getting not that much more heat from the sun as we are, but it happened to go through this 
climate process, this runaway greenhouse that made the temperature on the surface incredibly hot and not able to uh, sustain any water, right? The water all evaporated off of Venus. Uh, so we have to be a little bit more careful. We need to understand the dynamics of what's going on inside the bodies and outside because that's what creates the atmospheres. Another great example of this, I think we also need to kind of broaden the search for habitable worlds, let's say, because if you look in our solar system, aside from Earth, the next best place to possibly look for where life might form are actually in the water oceans of some of the moons in the outer solar system. Now, these oceans are buried like miles beneath the surface, but they're liquid water, they have energy sources, uh, they have complex uh, carbon molecules, all the kind of ingredients that we think might be important for life. So I think we need to um, think more carefully about what the conditions are for life on exoplanets out there. Um, and we might end up finding life in places we didn't expect. So when trying to understand what's inside planets, uh, we've talked about using detection methods for like magnetic fields and uh, uh, seismic research and things like that. But what can isolated pieces of physical evidence like meteorites and diamonds tell us about how planets are formed and what's inside them? Yeah, this is one of my favorite things in the world. So I'm going to start with the, the diamonds thing. We really would like to actually have samples from deep inside the Earth because that would be the best way to study it. Uh, it's impossible to do this. We can't drill deeper than about eight miles or something like that, right? And the Earth goes down about almost 3,000 miles, right? So it's, this is just not possible. Luckily for us, sometimes the Earth brings samples from the deep up to the surface. And one thing it does is it brings up diamonds. Lots of people know about diamonds because they're um, important in, say, the jewelry industry, things like that. And when you're, when you're someone who's a jeweler, what you really care about are these pure diamonds, the things that are just pure carbon in diamond form. When you're a geologist or someone who's studying the interior of the Earth, you want the impure diamonds. You want the diamonds where some little bit of the interior of the Earth got stuck in the middle of the diamond as it was forming. And because diamonds are so, so hard, they actually maintain their pressure. And so when they come up to the surface, that little bit of material from deep inside the Earth actually stays preserved in the inside of that diamond. And so we can actually study materials how they are in the deep interior of the Earth by looking at these inclusions in the diamonds when they come to the surface. So that's one thing. Now, meteorites are like the best Christmas gift anyone could ever get from other planets, right? It basically, um, you have some sort of collision or something that happened far away that caused a piece of a planet or an asteroid to get knocked off. Eventually, that piece of the asteroid came near Earth and some of it landed on Earth and we can go and collect it. Um, we, that, that's really where you have samples of the insides of other planets. And we even have meteorites that are very iron-rich, that come from the cores of previous planetary asteroid-like bodies that got broken up. So the one of the best pieces of evidence we have for what's in our core is actually looking at the cores of other bodies. They're all very similar. They all have this iron-rich cores that eventually come to Earth and, and we get to study them. Uh, this reminds me, there's an object that you mentioned several times in the book that I, I feel like I can tell you are especially excited about, and it is the uh, the asteroid 16 Psyche. Um, what, what makes Psyche so exciting? So first of all, there is a mission on its way to Psyche right now. So we are going to study this asteroid up close and personal, and I'm very excited about that. I think in our solar system, we're used to different kinds of worlds, right? You've got the rocky worlds of the inner um, planets in the solar system. You've got the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn. You've got the water worlds like Uranus and Neptune, and even some of the moons we can consider water worlds, Europa, uh, Enceladus, moons like that. 16 Psyche is a metal world. 
So this is a body that is mostly made of iron. It's mostly metal. And we just haven't seen that before. And I'm really excited about what it's going to be like to go um, look at this thing and, you know, answer questions like, hmm, what does a crater look like on a body that's mostly made of metal? What, is, what does a volcano look like on this thing? Does it have a magnetic field? What, what's really going on on the surface? So it's very exciting. It's a new type of planetary body that we've never gotten to see up close and personal. Um, I think you mentioned the idea of a metal volcano. Could, mm-hmm. is, the, is that that's a, a real thing? What does that mean? We're going to find out. But imagine this is, you know, this is a asteroid that's big enough that it could have stuff going on in the interior. You could have some of the iron from the interior being liquid and, and getting kind of taken up out of the interior and onto the surface at these volcanic vents. So, yeah, we might get to see a, a metal volcano up close. Um Coming back to looking inside planets, uh, if you go beyond Earth and even beyond the rocky planets, one of the most fascinating questions to ponder is um, what's inside the the gas planets and the ice giants. Uh, I I suspect you've seen the many variations on the article or video. What is it like to fall into Jupiter or something like that? Uh, it's clearly a captivating question because you know we see these outer cloud layers and there's just this you know question like obviously you imagine you're denser than some outer part of that cloud layer and you could sink down into it and you got to wonder what's inside. So what do we know about what is inside uh, the gas giants and the ice giants? Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So we are so accustomed to how materials behave in the types of conditions we have here on the surface of the earth. If I just say the word water, you have a natural instinctive reaction to what water is. It's either that liquid in my glass or maybe it's frozen on some ice somewhere or it's water vapor that's causing fog, right? Um, You put water under the high pressures and high temperatures that are deep inside planets, it's a completely different beast. Same thing is true for hydrogen. So let's start there. Hydrogen, the most kind of, the simplest element we have, thing that we're used to being in gaseous form. Now in Jupiter and in Saturn, as you keep descending into the planet, um, temperatures are rising, you can get to millions of degrees, you can get to millions of atmospheres of pressure, Hydrogen is a very different material under that pressure. And in fact, as you squeeze a hydrogen molecule, you basically allow, so imagine hydrogen molecule, you got a proton at the center in the nucleus and you got this electron floating around. You squeeze enough of those close together, um, the electrons essentially get freed from the protons and you create what's called what we call a metal. So you can actually have metallic hydrogen going on inside Jupiter and Saturn. And it's a great electrical conductor. That's actually where Jupiter creates its magnetic field, same with Saturn. So that's kind of a material we're not expected. Interestingly, helium, take another one. The second most simple element we have, helium. You do the same thing to helium. Uh, turns out that in the outer layers of Jupiter and Saturn, in the, in the atmosphere, helium and hydrogen are nicely mixed, right? It's kind of like if you put salt in water and, or sugar in water, warm water, and you, you stir it. They're nicely mixed. You can't kind of separate them. But you put them under high enough pressure, when this hydrogen becomes a nice metal, the helium no longer wants to stay mixed in it. And so helium will actually kind of exsolve out of the hydrogen and become these droplets. And then helium's heavier than hydrogen, so they drop out. It rains helium inside Jupiter and Saturn. So I think that's really cool. Then you get to the ice giants where you have a lot more complicated molecules, methane, uh, uh, ammonia, and you say, okay, what happens to those things under high pressure? And you can get things, for example, like um, super ionic water, water that's actually formed... Uh, in where all the oxygen atoms form a nice lattice and all the hydrogen 
the protons that would make up water in the H2O flow freely between it, something we've never seen on the surface of the Earth. Uh, and you can even make a diamond ocean deep inside uh, Neptune and Uranus. It's been hypothesized that the carbon in things like carbon dioxide and, and methane ends up uh, in the diamond phase deep inside, but then it melts, so you actually get a, a liquid diamond ocean. Diamond actually has this really cool property that water on the surface of the Earth also has, and that's that at right near that freezing point, um, the solid phase is slightly less dense than the liquid phase, which is why we have, for example, icebergs that can float on uh, water here. The same is true deep inside Uranus and Neptune. Diamondbergs would actually float on a diamond sea deep inside Uranus and Neptune. So these are just material behavior that we just have no experience with here on the surface of the Earth, and I love thinking about it. Yeah, it's simultaneously wonderful and frustrating that it violates our intuition, so you can't really picture it. You, you want to be able to, but you can't. Um, with the idea of, uh, you know, superheated ices and things like that. But it, it reminds me of actually things closer to home. You, you talk about other ways that even the interior of the Earth uh, also violates our intuitions about how uh, materials work. Uh, for example, I think there's a part in the book where you talk about how it's hard for people to understand sometimes that um, parts of the mantle migrate up and down, even though the mantle is solid, not liquid. Is that right? That's absolutely right. So I think there's also a, a big misunderstanding out there that you think because you see at volcanoes, you see this magma coming up being all liquid. You think that means that the interior of the earth, the mantle is all liquid. And that's absolutely not true. The rock inside the mantle of the earth is solid. It's very solid. Um, that doesn't mean it can't flow. So we do see that rock move around. Um, it moves on really slow timescales. So it can take hundreds of millions of years for a rock to make it from, say, the core mantle boundary up to the surface of the Earth. But it does flow. It does move around. And the only reason we see it in its liquid state at the surface is because it was under a lot of pressure um, deep inside the Earth. Pressures increase incredibly as you go down. And so that, there, it was basically pressure frozen. It was basically made a solid because of the high pressure. And then you bring that up to the surface and you release the pressure and everything kind of expands out and becomes the magma, the liquid that you see. There is a, a, a strange feature uh, toward the end of your book. There's a, there's a great section where you just sort of like <laughs> explore all of the different strange uh, aspects of, of uh, planets, especially like the ice giants and the, and the gas giants. So you talk about the helium rain, and the diamond rain. You also talk about um, why Uranus and Neptune have strange multipolar magnetic fields. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Imagine back to when we only really knew about the Earth's magnetic field, right? And Earth's magnetic field, the most common feature about it is it looks like a dipole. So there's a North Pole and there's a South Pole and the magnetic field lines connect them. Uh, when we started exploring other planetary bodies, we started to see this happen a lot. So Jupiter and Saturn, also very dipolar. Mercury, dipolar. Uh, when the Voyager 2 mission, which was the only mission that we have that has gone out to Uranus and Neptune, and basically just flew by for a little while, when it got to first Uranus, which is closer, it didn't see a dipolar field. It saw this multipolar field. So there were a bunch of North Poles and a bunch of South Poles all over the planet. I remember reading about some of uh, this history of when this happened in the 80s, and people, you know, weren't expecting that. So the first question you have is, oh, well, maybe, maybe something broke. Maybe the magnetometer is not <laughs> working properly or something like that. And they did lots of tests, and they make sure that wasn't the case. And then you get out to Neptune, and it's also this multipolar field. 
Mm. And so you got to say, hmm, well, were we just wrong about the fact that magnetic fields are supposed to be dipolar? And the fact that Uranus and Neptune happen to be the only water-rich planets in the solar system, these ice giants, um, and they happen to be the only ones with multipolar fields, then you got to start saying maybe there's a causal relationship there, right? So I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and trying to think about how you create multipolar fields in an ice giant. And it turns out that there are some features in an ice giant that might make multipolar fields more likely to occur. Turns out that the dynamo region can be really thin in these bodies, so you just have this really thin shell where the conditions are just right for um, convection to occur in a good electrical conductor and create a magnetic field. When you have this really thin shell, you can't make big global dipolar fields. Nothing's communicating the right way. All the length scales are too small. So maybe you get more multipolar fields that way. People are still studying this. We're really looking forward to a new mission, hopefully to Uranus, um, sometime in the next decade, uh, so that we can study the magnetic field up close and the interior of the planet so that we can understand the connection. We have a uh, basic idea of the types of planets that can exist from our own uh, solar system. We have, you know, the inner rocky planets, we have the gas giants, we have the ice giants, and then we have these other planets that we're familiar with from looking at other stars, uh, like the, the hot Jupiters and the super Earths and so forth. But there is a new planet type that you introduced me to. Uh, in this book. I don't think I'd ever heard of it before. The hypothetical carbon planet. Mm. That sounds so strange. What is the deal with this? Yeah. um, You know, it's interesting. When you look in our solar system, and let's say you look at the rocks inside the Earth, uh, they're mostly made of what we call silicates. So they have silicon and oxygen atoms combined together. Magnesium silicates, aluminum silicates. This is kind of what defines the chemistry of the rocks on the Earth. And all of that was determined by the ratio of carbon to oxygen to magnesium in the protoplanetary disk that formed and eventually became all the materials we have. Now, if you go to some other solar systems out there, they might have slightly different ratios. And um, if a, a nebula out there that eventually forms a star with planets around it happened to have a little bit more carbon, then the types of rocks that you form, the types of minerals that you form can be very different. And you can actually create planets that are mostly made of carbon, that have a a much higher carbon content than what we have here on Earth. It's a geologist kind of like um, dreamscape to think about what if the chemistry was just slightly different because there's just a little bit more of some like tiny sub-element, right? Remember, our solar system was mostly hydrogen and helium. Mm. And it was just little bits of these rocks that eventually became the Earth. And now you just slightly tweak Um, the ratio of those uh, elements in extrasolar planets, and you could create completely different worlds. Uh, Last question. You you already mentioned why the upcoming uh, study of asteroid 16 Psyche is going to be so exciting, but what are some of the other upcoming missions and experiments that you think are likely to teach us the most about planetary science? What are you most excited to learn in the near future? Okay, there are two missions that I'm most excited about, and I actually have nothing to do with these missions, so I'm just a super fan of these missions. Um, The first one is the Europa Clipper mission, which is going to go to a moon of Jupiter named Europa, scheduled launch next year. Um, And Europa is an exciting place because it's this icy moon of Jupiter, and we know that it has a liquid water ocean buried beneath the surface. And we think it has all the ingredients you might think of as necessary for life. So um, the plan is to go there and see, try to try to get a sense of what that ocean is made of. Are there complex molecules in there that are kind of what we would consider the building blocks of life, things like that. So that's one really exciting. The other one is actually another moon. Um, there's a mission called Dragonfly, 
which is Ooh. scheduled. Yeah, you know it's going to be a good mission when it has a cool name, right? So Dragonfly is scheduled to go to Saturn's moon Titan. Now, Titan, in my opinion, is probably one of the coolest places in the solar system to think about. Um, it's the only other planetary body out there to have nitrogen as its main base thick atmosphere. So the Earth is the other planet, right? So it has some similarities to Earth. It's the only other body out there that we have seen liquids running on the surface. So just like on Earth, we have rivers and seas and oceans. Titan has rivers and seas and oceans on the surface. Now there's a catch. They're not water. Those rivers and seas and oceans are actually made of things like methane and ethane. So not, you know, fun places. Um, but Titan has this thick atmosphere. And it's also incredibly small. So it has a really low gravity. So my favorite fact about Titan is that it's really easy to fly there. So you could strap some cardboard on your arms and flap them on the surface of Titan, <laughs> and you could fly, right? So this is amazing. So the Dragonfly mission has decided to take advantage of it. So it's sending essentially an octocopter. So it's two quadcopters. So think of a helicopter, but with eight different blade things. Uh -huh. um, it's sending this thing out there. It's going to be able to land on the surface, do a bunch of science, and then take off again, look around, figure out where it wants to go next, travel quite long distances, and then land again and do more science. So this is going to be the first time we're able to study this world um, very locally, right? Like touch it, and also fly around to very different parts of it. And Titan's exciting because it has all the building blocks of life. We know there's a liquid water ocean underneath. We know it has complex chemicals, those, those hydrocarbons like methane and ethane. We know it has energy sources. So we really want to understand uh, a lot of the processes that we think are important in the creation of life are going to be happening on Titan, and we're excited to study them up close. Dr. Sabine Stanley, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk. Thanks so much. This was fun. All right. If you would like to check out the book for yourself, again, it is called What's Hidden Inside Planets uh, from 2023, available in audiobook form as well, if that's your medium of choice. A uh, quick note about our show, if you are new to it, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science and culture podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays of every week. Usually I'm joined by my co-host Robert Lamb. He's out on vacation this week, uh, but he will be back again soon. Uh, let's see. Mondays of each week, we read back messages from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind email address, which I'll give out in just a moment. Uh, on Wednesdays of each week, we feature a short-form scripted podcast called The Artifact or The Monster Fact, or uh, even uh, there are some new new types of facts coming online. Uh, you, you'll learn about them soon. Uh, also, we uh, have a show that airs every Friday that is a movie show. This is sort of a more informal thing that Rob and I do uh, every Friday. It is called Weird House Cinema, where we just watch and discuss strange films, good or bad, uh, well-known or obscure. We, we take them all. Weird movies on Weird House Cinema. And then on Saturdays, we run an episode from The Vault, an older episode of the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Causeway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind .com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 